On this episode, we discuss HBO Max details being revealed, a new ultralight drone from DJI, which might skirt some laws, and SP has an update about the James Webb Telescope. Plus, Chris has another edition of Chris Taps That App. This week, he discusses saving humanity. This and more in this week's show. I'm David S. Dawson from the Intellectual Podcast, a show that spotlights creatives from all walks of life. Part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other incredibly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Stephen, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Stephen, back with 30% less freeze frame this week, and I'm pleased to say that Chris Farrell is here again this week. Chris is back with 100% more freeze frame, apparently. And also, SP's here. See, I thought last week was the entry drug for your brother to come and take over the show <laughs> so we could finally have the better John Drew brother wow. take over the show. So That's harsh. That That is a little harsh, but I get where you're coming from. I get where you're coming from on that. It's and, right here. And right it's here, because man. he is the better John Drew, apparently. And you've made it no secret that you don't like me and that you wish that I would die so that he could take over the show. I'm pretty sure that those were your exact words. Die in a fire was the exact word. That's Thank right. You. you were. I stand corrected. When space debris falls from the sky and hits your house, you'll die in a fire. <laughs> it's true. By the way, first off, let me say thank you to these two here for doing the show without me last week. It kind of was a project that I let get away from me a little bit. You were you were here. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's fair enough. It's on my episode count. I counted it. Uh, but we are. <laughs> we we did. I am honored to have you guys as co-hosts because you were able to go and pick that up so quick. It was short notice. I let you guys know that. So sincerely, thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. No problem. You see, you let us know five minutes before the show. So just so you know, you know, if it takes us five minutes to get the show going, it's only going to take your brother two. fair enough. Uh, also, we're going to touch on why I was waiting in one minute. But before we do that, I want to say right now as well that we didn't have this announced last week, but I believe last week, SP, was your official first episode back from your hiatus until your next car hiatus. Is that correct? That is correct. When the next car hiatus might happen at any time, you never know when the parts are going to come in and I'm going to have to actually try to install them back into the car. This will be the third complete engine rebuild. Yes, third complete engine rebuild. Yeah. But I am happy that you are here at least for now until your next hiatus, because uh, I know a lot of people were, were thinking, mostly Chris, that you were just abandoning us. No, Chris didn't think that at all. But no, seriously, I, I, I'm happy that you're back for now until the next hiatus. Uh, it's always great to have you on the show. And it's I know the listeners like the listeners want the SP. They love the SP. They don't want Chris or I. They just wish it was the Gunna Geek SP show. I That's the exact fan mail that they've sent to JS. Really? The Gunna Geek SP show? Not the Gunna Geek SP show with the better John Drew brother and SP? No, no. They just want you. They want you. Wow. Uh, guest starring my brother, I believe, is what they want. Uh, okay, that, I can believe that. Guys, I've chased a lot of co-hosts away. Uh, JS, Naki, Yadahey, Wing twice. I just can't get it to stick with SP for some reason. I don't know what it is. It just doesn't stick. And also, you chased away an entire podcast, the Fanboy Buzz podcast. That's oh, true. I did kill the Fanboy Buzz. <laughs> <sighs> Not some crazy comic book creator who didn't help with that, though. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much uh, for coming on back. We're happy to have you continuing on with the show. And also, uh, why I was away last week is something that we might talk a little bit more about in the upcoming months. This is a family-friendly podcast, Stephen. You can't talk about that here. No, not that. No. I, I had a smart home project I was working on that involved a lot more work than I had planned because my Wink Relay that I had in my kitchen, I finally decided to pull it out because Wink went to crap. 
We know that it's went gone to crap. We've talked about it on this show. And it was really my last piece of like Wink dependency. I actually have a couple devices still sitting on Wink, but they don't have to be there. And then not a big deal if they go down. But uh, I decided to pull that out. And it was just finding replacements and dealing with replacements was a whole other level of pain in the butt. And it just encroached into, uh, encroached, I should say, into last week's show. So thank you very much again to you two for picking that up. And I think we should talk a little more smart home tech here in future episodes, because I know that is something that uh, we all are dabbling in and we try to talk about here and there, but maybe we should make it a little more consistent. I don't know. You know what my advice, people? Don't do it because it makes your brain hurt and your wallet hurt. That's fair. That's very (laughs) fair. It's actually really fun and we can get into it more in the future. Don't you have a set of smart blinds on their way? No, they're not available in the United States in by online order. You have to find them in store and the IKEA in Pittsburgh doesn't have them in stock. So I'd have no I smart blinds. Thought you ordered them from IKEA.ca. No, I'm not paying the money for that. Are you kidding All me? Right. Now, if Steven wants to pay my salary in the version of smart blinds, I'm totally on board with that. I did a little wink, wink. looking after that last show where we discussed this, and it's not looking good for my place either because of the the, the dimension that they sell them in. I have to say, it's not looking promising compared to my window that, sizes. That's the tough thing for me because the window I want to put it in is ginormous, and I think I realized I'd have to put in three or four sets of blinds, and at 150 to 200 bucks a pop, yeah, it's a bit cost prohibitive. Yeah. It's- yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know that they've chosen the right sizes for this. So we will see. Who knows? Maybe we'll make it happen. But I think that our excitement level was maybe a little unfounded, Chris Farrell. I I don't know that. I mean, unfounded, no. But I think that even at this low price point for what smart blinds are, it's not quite low enough for me to be able to jump on. That's, That's the thing. It's interesting from a DIY home builder version instead of getting like some custom controlled stuff that you see a lot of folks do, but it's still at a price point where it's uncomfortable. Maybe I'll try and find a small set of blinds for like the bedroom or something like that as a prototype. I don't know. I'll be honest. I paid Ikea a lot of money so that they would make blinds that don't work for your windows because I like Mm. to peek in your windows. And if you put blinds up, then I can't do that anymore. Uh, And one thing I did find out on those, you also have to have the Ikea hub to make them work. Okay, and now, I'm, now I'm just Google Assistant. I'm completely disappointed now, so I'm just going to go ahead and move on. Let's just do that. Okay. Let's kick it off here with a little bit of streaming news. Streaming is definitely uh, on the up and up over the last little bit here, and it's uh, not showing any signs of slowing down. And that includes HBO, which has finally revealed the details of one of their 3,000 services that they are offering. Ain't that the truth? So yes, HBO Max, we finally got some details on it this last week what it's going to cost, what kind of content's on it, what's unique to it, is it 4K, stuff like that. So we did find out that HBO Max will be launching in May 2020 in the United States. I didn't see anything about Canada or any other countries yet, so I apologize on that front. It will cost $15 a max. Excuse me, $15 a month, not a max. See, the naming convention's already screwing with me. Why do I say the naming convention's screwing with me? Because in addition to HBO Max, there's also HBO Go, HBO Now, AT&T now, DirecTV now, all things owned by the same parent company. Where it gets very confusing is if you use HBO Go, that means you subscribe to HBO through a cable provider or something like that. And that's the app you use. If you use HBO now, that means you stream as a cord cutter, for lack of a better term. Very confusing. Makes my brain hurt. But 15 bucks a month is what HBO Max is going to cost. They are going to have it bundled with some AT&T wireless plans. So if you're a cellular customer on AT&T, you should get it as part of your package. And if you subscribe to HBO Now, which is the cord cutter instance of HBO, HBO Max will be a free add-on is what they seem to indicate. So you're getting a lot of content. How does this compare to the other streaming providers out there? Well, Netflix's most popular package, which is like the 4K, four concurrent streams, I believe it is, 13 bucks a month. A Hulu subscription with ads is six bucks. Hulu subscription with, excuse me, without ads, 12 bucks. Disney Plus is seven bucks a month or 70 bucks annually. 
Amazon Prime, I don't remember the cost, but it's bundled in with your Prime costs. So HBO Max, seemingly on the high side for pricing. And I'm not sure that's exactly the smartest play. Now, HBO does have premium content a lot of people watch. Like I mentioned earlier, HBO Max has been live for like two or three years at 15 bucks a month. But eh? HBO being high priced? Shocked yeah. am I. Thanks, Yoda. <laughs> no, seriously, like it's not surprising to me at all that they are they're this high price. They have always been overpriced for what they are. Like when you look at what the other comparable cable networks have been, they've always been high priced. So I'm not surprised because they think that they have the content that they can lock it down. I don't know that I agree with that philosophy with the way that there are so many streaming services producing some pretty high quality originals. I don't know that they're going to have the pull that they used to. HBO is the granddaddy of premium content, really. And just on their name alone, they think they're going to get it. And some of the shows that they think they're going to bring on, I think they think people are going to go ahead and, and pop the money for it. But honestly, you know, when you got Apple TV at $4.99, you got Disney Plus at $5.99, and this is all American. I have no idea what well, the Canadian is. I just see HBO Max is not really getting the support behind it as they think there's going to be. So here's me taking a shot at Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, there's not a ton on there to really attract you to that. There are like the few Apple unique only shows that are on there for $4.99 a month. I guess that's great. The fact they're giving away for free if you've bought a new Apple product. That's cool so you can watch it. But I don't think there's enough there to make me go, oh my God, I have to subscribe to this to watch these shows. Uh, HBO's plan and Warner's plan here, I think a lot of it's coming to originals to an extent, but also they have a massive back catalog. And that's why I wanted to gauge you guys' interest before we talked about the things that were in the back catalog. So let's start touching on that. And I'm not a huge anime person, things like that. But when we talked about this on the All Things Good Nerdy podcast, my co-hosts who watch more of it were really excited by the fact that Warner Media announced that all 21 of Studio Ghibli's animated features will stream exclusively on HBO Max. They do not stream anywhere else. You can only get them on HBO Max. The lineup includes family-friendly favorite My Neighbor Totoro, the Oscar award-winning Spirited Away, and The Wind Rises. Most of these films will be available at launch. So a lot of people are really excited about getting some classic or some high-quality anime. We've also learned that they have a plan of having 10,000 hours of content at launch. So that means they have to have a pretty big back catalog. That back catalog of things that's been confirmed is the entire back catalog of Friends once it leaves Netflix in 2020, the entire run of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and the show Pretty Little Liars. I've watched one of those shows. It was The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and it is still awesome to this day. They've also acquired the rights to stream The Big Bang Theory for, I believe it was about a billion dollars, and they just last week closed on a deal to become the official streaming home of Trey Parker and Matt Stone's South Park for a $500 million deal. So that will leave Hulu in 2020 and become exclusive to HBO Max. They will also be streaming a bunch of content from Warner-owned channels, including Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Rick and Morty will be streaming on HBO Max, but will be staying on Hulu. So I'm not sure what the deal is there. So that's some of the back catalog stuff. They also announced Greg Berlanti, who SP and I know from Arrow and creating the Arrowverse and the CW, will be producing two new DC Comics shows for HBO Max, a Green Lantern series, which we know nothing about and the fact it's Green Lantern related, and an anthology series called Strange Adventures. The HBO Max service will also be the exclusive streaming source for all Warner Brothers dramas produced for the CW network, beginning with the fall 2019 season premiere of Batwoman and another Riverdale spinoff that will be coming. So Batwoman will only stream on HBO Max when the deal expires with Netflix for Arrow, Legends, Flash, Supergirl, and all that. It will all move to HBO Max and will not be available on the DC Universe streaming app. So to me, it's starting to sound like the DC Universe app is going to die, neither here nor there. But no, we're not done with back catalog content here, guys. Doctor Who, if you want to stream Doctor Who's back catalog, the exclusive streaming home starting in spring 2020, HBO Max. All 11 seasons of the modern Doctor Who series will be able to launch everything new in spring 2020. Future seasons will also stream on HBO Max after they have aired on BBC America. So we've gotten into 
A lot of the back catalog, still not done though. The full slate of HBO's original series, that includes Veep, Game of Thrones, Larry Sanders' show, upcoming J.J. Abrams-produced show, Joss Whedon-produced show, all of those kind of things will be available on HBO Max. So everything you can go and watch on your HBO Now app right now should be watchable on HBO Max. Giant back catalog. Premium cable programming from Cinemax is probably in the mix. Also additional content produced by Warner Brothers, New Line Cinemas, DC Entertainment, TNT, TBS, True TV, The CW, Turner Classic Movies, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Crunchyroll for the anime lovers, Rooster Teeth, and Looney Tunes all fall under this banner and are potentially fair game. Still not done with all the back catalog, the Godzilla movies, the King Kong movies, the Shared Monster movies, the Lord of the Rings franchise. Really the only thing that's Warner Brothers owned that we won't have the potential to see on here is the Harry Potter series because they have sold the streaming rights to NBC Universal through 2025 for Harry Potter. So they're going to have to wait six years right now to add Harry Potter. So the back catalog is huge. We didn't even get into the original content because honestly, the original content's not super interesting at this point, aside from the Greg Berlanti stuff. There's like a flight attendant series starring Kaylee Cuoco. A few other things have been floated around out there. It's the back catalog that's the interesting play here. So guys, this is a ton of content. It's tons of it. And here's the problem. They didn't say anything about whether it'll be in 4K or HDR or anything like that. And I do believe all of the stuff on Apple TV Plus that they've put out is 4K HDR. All of the new content on Disney Plus is going to be 4K HDR. So my hope is a lot of these originals we get in 4K HDR. No clue on HBO Max. But reading everything they've got in their back catalog, if these are the kind of things you're interested in, includes Sesame Street. I forgot to mention that because HBO has Sesame Street as well. Lots of kids potential there. Lots of potential for adult-oriented back catalog information. And also at this press event, they started getting into how they were curating their lists and curating their content, how it will learn what your tastes are and supposedly make better recommendations. Or if it's your jam, allow you to take celebrity and famous people recommend to you shows and you can subscribe to their lists of recommended stuff. HBO Max has got a lot of stuff coming. $15 not seeming unreasonable. I, I don't know. I have HBO now currently. I almost said HBO now, now, which wouldn't have made sense. <laughs> but I have HBO now currently because we watch uh, John Oliver's show and my wife watched Game of Thrones. There's a couple other things we dabbled in. If I can get AT&T Max as part of my HBO subscription, I'm fine with that because it combines them with a cost I'm already paying. But if they weren't combined, I don't know if it was enough for me to jump on because while the back catalog's good, yeah, I don't care. I got too much stuff to watch already on services already subscribed to. So the question for you guys here and in the chat room, with this back catalog, does it change your opinion at all on what you'd be thinking for AT&T? It's not AT&T, HBO <laughs> Max. See, the problem is their naming convention sucks for these things. Yeah. Uh, I'll say slightly changes my mind. Still question the longevity at that price point. Um, banking so heavily on a back catalog because... People are only interested in old stuff so long, but having friends, I uh, hate to say it, they'll get away with it. There are so many diehard Friends fans, they'll they'll gladly pay it. People thought that their life was over when Friends was announced to be leaving Netflix. So I, I don't get it. I don't either. What's the deal uh, with Friends? And I know that sounded like Seinfeldism <clears throat> right know. there. Be like, what's the deal with Friends? I, I just don't get it. I, I don't either, but... I think they have a couple key back catalog properties that they'll be able to get by on it. And then you toss in the new stuff. And also the interesting thing to me was you were saying the whole CW streaming um, rights in there and whatnot. So does that mean like the CW seed app or whatever is going to go away? They won't be able to do that anymore. So they haven't said anything about the fate of the CW seed app, the DC universe app, but it sounds like they're consolidating a lot of these programs into HBO Max. So I would not be shocked if CW Seed and uh, the DC Universe app both got shuttered. And they said, hey, if you want this content, go to DC Universe. I don't think the regular CW app is going to get shuttered because they like that. Here's another way for people to watch for free, but we draw ad revenue on these shows for six weeks after they air. I think they want to keep that going because we've talked about on the Starting Tribune, those numbers they get from streaming there are obviously enough that they can gleam whether something should be saved and renewed or canceled based off of how people are watching it that way. So my hope is 
they don't kill that app because then they're going to kill a lot of their series. Well, SP, let's get your uh, feedback here after I just quickly recap the poll that I posted to Geeks.Live. If you didn't know that we do stream the show live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time at Geeks.Live, and there is a poll that I like to run as we talk about these. And I asked if HBO Max interested people, and we had three options. Yes, I'll get it. Yes, I might get it. And no, I'm not getting it. And it's a 50-50 split between uh, the latter two. So yes, I might get it 50%. No, I'm not getting it 50%. And it was bouncing around quite a bit. So I'm not surprised. I'm really not. Uh, for me, it's a moot point because I can't get it in Canada. Uh, yay. Yet. I'm sure they're going to come up with some plan for international distribution at some point. I can't say that I agree with that statement because the HBO s streaming model in Canada has never really properly materialized. It's kind of been through third parties and weird. So um, I, I don't I can't agree with that statement because HBO hasn't done a very good job to date. But I think this back catalog stuff, while you, maybe it would be missing some of the HBO content, I'm pretty sure they negotiated the rights to be free and clear to stream this anywhere and everywhere. Like, remember, Netflix used to have issues. They were only allowed to stream certain shows in certain mm -hmm. countries, i.e. Star Trek Discovery, for instance, is one of the things we've talked about in the past. I believe most of the things they negotiate now are, is if we're going to stream this, it's a license for everywhere. Now that's good. Not certain countries. So I would assume AT&T, Time Warner, HBO, whatever company name we want to call them by, probably tried to do something similar for this back catalog, especially when they're throwing around numbers like 500 million and $1 billion <laughs> for streaming rights. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts, SP? Did I hear right? Uh, this is going to have Star Trek Discovery on it? Uh, no, that was just an example of, oh. of licensing restrictions. Uh, I guess but I'm if not you want to watch it, it, just ask Steven to point his webcam at his TV and you mm. can consume it that way. Okay. I may have accidentally left Team Viewer going on my PC that you could remote into. <gasps> nice. Oh, the, the Canadian version of the RIAA or whatever is going to come and get you now. <laughs> At least they don't know about how I record them and send them to you by mail. That's not true. That's not true. I don't do that. Okay, give me your thoughts. No, he the human couriers them to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I think HBO Max is one of the more unfortunate naming conventions that they've done. They should have named it like Warner Max or Warner Media Streaming or something like that. The, the, it, HBO Max is really confusing. Even to me, I know I've heard all the different versions out there. And by the way, there's more countries out there. Like there's an HBO Nordic, for instance. So it's not just here in the United States. I think this is a pretty hefty price tag for all of this in consideration of other streaming services. Like I said before, heck, even Netflix is less than this. So, yeah, probably not right away. I might eventually get it if I hear that the Green Lantern show is worth watching. But I think it could do without everything else on this list. And if what you say is true, that HBO or uh, that uh, the BBC is still broadcasting Doctor Who live on the BBC America channel and then streaming it on HBO Max, then there's no reason for me to get HBO Max to watch Doctor Who because I can see it when it's broadcast live on BBC America. Yep, you should still be good in that front. I think, and honestly, I think the reason why they're bundling this with AT&T plans and with HBO Now subscribers is just to pump up their numbers at launch. Because they make, look, we've got... All of these people that subscribe, they're not actually paying for it. We bundled it with an existing service they had, but it makes the numbers look good because let's be honest, Netflix fairly entrenched. Disney Plus surprisingly popular before it's even launched already. Supposedly they've got over a million subscribers. Is I what think there's a little around. bias in that number that you just said, Chris, because, well, you bought a three-year subscription. <laughs> I, I fully acknowledge. I, so I fully acknowledge I subscribed to Disney Plus when they had the buy two years, get one year free because the content was appealing to me. And of course, I'm also paying the equivalent of like three bucks a month. But uh, let me take my bias hat off. It's still incredibly impressive. The amount of excitement and buzz there's been on Disney Plus when people were subscribing before they could even watch anything that was on the service, just based off the fact like I get my Marvel movies, my Star Wars movies, exclusive TV series. It's an interesting to me how exciting people, excuse me, how excited people are with this service. And 
the kind of buzz you're hearing about that. When's the last time you heard someone have buzz over a streaming service like we've seen with Disney Plus? That's true. Any but- service that has John Carter on, I'm in immediately. <laughs> See, there you go. That's all it takes for SP to spend his seven bucks a month is John Carter. You can put Except that on for it's not going to be on Disney Plus. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Before we hop off this, there's two things that I think we should highlight uh, right now. Number one, uh, I'll call you out for the audio listener. Chris Farrell is a liar. He was not wearing a hat, nor did he take one off. Uh, that's the point. He said he was going to take it off his It was an invisible hat. hat. He, it's he, invisible. Yeah, audio listener doesn't know this. They just picture you as a liar now. So there you go. Uh, number two, uh, that's a lot of streaming talk that we had. We should start a uh, new streaming show or something like that. What, was it cordmurderers.com or cord I might own oh. cordslayers.com. Cord Slayers. There you go. That's what it was. Cordslayers. <laughs> but it's kind of infringing on someone else's <laughs> show name, so we probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Moving on to the next news point here. This is out of the drone world. If you are not familiar or haven't listened or watched the back catalog, we're drone enthusiasts here. Chris Farrell doesn't own one, but SP and I do, and we all like to talk about drones. Uh, SP, I think you own four different models of drone. I don't even know how many it is, but I haven't bought one in a while. Yeah, but you own several. So he's uh, due. I own one. Uh, The majority of the drones I think that we own are are DJI drones. And uh, the the majority of drones that are worth flying are DJI (laughs) drones. That's true. That's fair enough. And DJI has announced a new drone. They have announced the Mavic Mini. Now, the Mavic Mini is interesting because it is a very small drone that still boasts a variety of good features far ahead of things that in the size of this type of drone. It's got a 12 megapixel camera. It does 2.7K 30fps H.264 video, has approximately 30 minute flight time, a four kilometer, four kilometer, whichever way you want to say it, range. Of course, has the GPS technology. A lot of the ones in the smaller footprint don't use GPS technology. Of course, it has the DJI known and loved gimbal technology. So you're supposed to have those really steady shots that a lot of the other smaller drones don't have. It has a foldable design. And it also has some of the pre-programmed modes that you've seen on some of the other Mavic models like the Mavic Air and the Mavic Pro 2 including the droney mode, the rocket mode, the circle mode, and the helix. Those are essentially modes where you press a button and it has a sort of flight path that it does to create really cool video. Other available features for this include a charging base that has the dome, the clear dome to show off your drone as it's charging. It has snap adapters to add on accessories. And the way that the multi-battery charger works is it also is a two-way charging hub, meaning that once it's charged, it can actually also act as a power bank to charge mobile devices. Now, this is actually, I think, a really important feature to have because a lot of people need to use their phone or their tablet and they'll go and they'll charge their drone or they'll have it all ready to go and then they'll go to go out and maybe a few hours later, they actually get flying, but they forgot that they watched Netflix in between or whatever and so now their phone's low. So at least they've got a little bit of a way to charge that up. But the killer thing on this is its weight is 249 grams. Now, why is that relevant? Number one, that's a very, very light drone. That's smaller than many drones' batteries. Number two, that barely, barely skirts the drone laws in the US and Canada. Now, here's the thing. I think that... I don't know what is measured down there, but I know that I've read on both sides of the border, the laws, this does get right below that threshold. I know up here, it says that if it's a 250 gram drone, you have to do all the drone um, rules and regulations in Canada. Below that, basically, you don't have to be a dick. That's essentially what it comes down to. Meaning, with the drone laws in Canada, there's all sorts of restrictions, like you can't fly over people, you have to stay out of certain airspace, whole bunch of regulations that are in effect, especially after this past July when they were all overhauled. 249 grams, technically below that, meaning that it can get away under those regulations. So I could theoretically take it, fly it over the middle of my subdivision here. And when people go, you're not allowed to do that. I'd be like, 
I am. I am because it's 249 grams. Now, the downside to this drone, the big negatives to this is there's no 4K, no raw pictures, and very limited sensors. So sensors are a big thing that have been coming out of the drone world. Essentially, more sensors means less likelihood of crashing. So that, you're talking so, about anti-collision sensors. Anti, good point. Anti-collision anti sensors so that you're not moving it sideways into trees, things like that. This really only has sensors downwards. That That's it. So I'm interested to see what happens with this. Uh, more importantly, I'm interested to see what their quality control is here, because if you're talking a one gram difference between the rules, if they're not manufacturing this to be below so that when there is an error and it goes above during the manufacturing process, we're going to push over that as well. The whole measurement thing happens like what is it you throw a label on there and now it's over over the weight like it's it's unfortunately too close to comfort for my liking. If I knew that it, they were all being produced and they were actually coming a little under 249 and 249 was sort of their their caution measurement. I might be interested in this just to fly it in some places that I'm not allowed to fly it and not to be a dick or anything, but just where I live, there are certain areas that I'm just not allowed to fly a drone because of the um, drone pilot certificate that I've got won't allow me to do it in certain places. So I would get this so that I could fly in more interesting things and also some real, you know, practical situations like if I want to fly it over my roof. Technically, if I do it right now, I need to make sure that there's a certain amount of meters. I got no neighbors near me and all this other things, right? Because of the fact that I have to be so many meters away from everybody. So something like this would be handy where it's like, oh, I don't need to worry about that. Throw it up, do what I need to check, bring it back down. I'm interested to see how this works out, especially given this is the first drone that has a ton of features that are comparable to a lot of the main consumer drones out there and it's below that that threshold let's see what happens with the regulations too yeah so basically you're saying this is a toy drone that is able to act like the other commercial drones out there which is great also as a side note the 249 grams is listed on their specs site as aircraft takeoff weight which does include the battery and propellers so it is the full wet weight basically if you think in terms of aircraft wet weight of the aircraft as it's taking off interesting very interesting you know i've been toying with getting it there's a couple reasons why i wouldn't want to get this first of all the drone that i have is very equivalent to this anyway and is actually better performance so why would i want to go down a little bit when i already fly by all the regulations that sort of stuff uh it does spec out as 30 miles an hour for speed, which is incredibly yeah, fast for such is. a small drone. And it does have the limited four kilometer range to it, which in my flight cases, because I fly over lakes and stuff like that, be very limiting for me if I do that. Now, around my neighborhood, it might be fun just to fly it out in the backyard or whatever. I'm wondering, like, there's a wind limit that I know I'm safely comfortable flying with my Mavic right now and my Parrot. If I took this out in windy conditions, I'd be very hesitant to take it out in even 10 mile an hour winds. I mean, I can pretty much fly 20, 25 mile an hour gusts with the Mavic, but this I would, uh, I'd have to learn more about it from other people because there's a ton of people on the internet right now. You can shake a rock, shake a stick at a YouTube video that is reviewing this right now. So yeah, get to know what its capabilities are and if you can really use this outside versus you need a more hefty commercial drone that weighs a little bit more. Yeah, the thought occurred to me as well on the wind factor. I am interested in keeping my eye on this. That's where I'm at right now. Uh, if there's a lot of success out there, I could see myself one day getting this because it, again, it assuming that the regulations don't change, which could easily be done. They could be like, it's 240 grams, or they could go, it needs to be some random way that they, they get around this being a gram below or whatever, right? If, there, if it was, though, 
capable of staying below that threshold. There is all sorts of other fun flying that I can do. And again, not being a dick about it. Chris Farrell, I know that you have commented that where you live, one of the problems with getting into drone flying is there's not a lot of places that you can easily do it. Does a drone like this, which could possibly allow you to circumvent those rules, does that intrigue you a little more? I think that's interesting, especially if I would not be subject to those rules, but I would have to go and do some research on it before I'd want to do it. My problem is where I live, there's an airport in close proximity and West Virginia University, all of which are no-fly zones. And West Virginia University has some like crazy release system you have to go through to try and fly any drone over their property. And there's a West Virginia University farm close by my house where it would be interesting to fly because there's not a ton out there to worry about hitting. But I'm pretty sure that would be covered and there are no-fly zones. So it's interesting. I'm not sure it's $500 interesting to me right now. I don't think that's an unreasonable price from what I can tell. I just don't want to spend that much cash at the moment. That being said, the size of this and what it can do for the cost, I would not be shocked to see a lot of YouTubers start to include this in their arsenal because I watch some travelers on YouTube who travel around the world and they get some incredible drone shots of things, but their drones are fairly large in size and take up a lot of space in their bags. And when you're living out of a bag, that probably adds up after a while. If they could use this Mavic Mini, which is ridiculous, ti ridiculously tiny in comparison, that might be a good niche for them to fill. It's intriguing, but I don't think it's for me. I fly a drone that's 1080 and I fly a drone that's 4K. The Mavic is 480 or uh, 4K and the Parrot is 1080. There is a definite quality difference between the two. And especially if you're 100 feet up in the air, 200 feet up in the air, up to 400 feet, because that's where you can safely fly according to the regulations. And the controls are limited to that, by the way. If you're flying that high and then you look down, it is just incredibly hard to see anything if you're not 4K. So 4K with a drone is definitely better. The other thing that I want to address is the regulations. The moment one of these smacks into a hospital helicopter or a police helicopter or something like that, because some of those helicopters come in fast and they come in low. And the moment that happens, there's going to be regulation changes. Yep. Agreed. Moving on to the next news point. Uh, actually, before we do that, uh, I asked the question on Geeks Out Live. Does the Mavic Mini make you more interested in getting a drone? And we had, again, a 50-50 split with 50% saying, yes, I probably can't get one. But if I were, this would be it. And 50% saying no interest. Moving on to the next news point here. We got more space news, right, SP? That's right. If you're not interested in flying a drone, and you're crazy if you're not, by the way, it's a lot of fun, you might be interested in flying a space telescope. You know, someday that might happen. Might be you. In the meantime, though, leave it up to the professionals. And NASA is making the James Webb Space Telescope, and it is passing by milestone by milestone, getting ready for its launch. And the latest thing is it passed a vital sun shield test. So what happened? Well, I searched space.com for an article on this because I heard it happen and I saw one, an article by Samantha Mathewson, and she wrote that NASA's James Webb Space Telescope reached a major milestone when engineers fully deployed and tensioned each of the five layers of the sunshield to the same position it will be in when it is one million miles from Earth. The sunshield will protect the telescope from the sun's powerful radiation and in turn, help regulate the temperature of Webb's optics and sensors. Next, the spacecraft will undergo electrical and mechanical tests to simulate the vibration environment it will endure during launch. Then the telescope has just one final deployment and stowing cycle before it launches to space. The James Webb Space Telescope is ex expected to launch in March 2021. All right, SP, let me ask you this. Why is this not up yet? I thought that this was years ago that this was supposed to go up. Hasn't this been delayed? Dude, this takes a while. First of all, it's not going to be like the Hubble where it's just going to be floating around in Leo where we can go up and fix the broken thing or go up and, uh, well, I don't know. Actually, SpaceX might be doing something in the future. But anyway, this isn't designed to have an in-flight service. So you got to get it right the first time. So it is going through a battery of tests in a lot of simulated environments, vacuum chambers, 
temperature chambers, so on and so forth, to make sure that it works, make sure that it deploys and comes back together. I think the most stringent test is coming up here, and that's the vibration test. And really, launch vibrations are a concern to any space vehicle. You got to make sure that it can withstand not only the vertical, but the lateral uh, vibrations and just make sure that it's going to work because this is a lot of money and this is supposed to be just leap years ahead of the Hubble in terms of capability. I can't wait to start seeing some of the pictures. There's only one, by the way, they're not mm. making a backup. This is right. it. So this has to work first time out. Because wasn't there a big setback that was that happened a little while ago where there was something completely unexpected that happened with it? Well, I mean, there was, there isn't anything and it, it did push back the timetable. It added cost, but it seems to have recovered and they're moving forward with it. The sun shield by far is the most complicated thing because what they're doing, which is different than the Hubble is they're shielding the heat and the light from the sun and they're pointing it out towards the universe that was also shielded against the earth and the moon and the Corona from them. So it's just going to be this this big heat and light shield that is phenomenal. Matter of fact, when I was at Star Wars Celebration, I talked to one of the engineers that had designed the material that went on the sun shield. And I got to be really in-depth geeking with him on how thin it was, how strong it was, how temperature resistant it was. So if this goes up and it acts as design, this is going to be amazing and we're going to get a lot more. It's not just going to be space telescopes, but future space vehicles will benefit from the sun shield technology as well. Well, I did post a poll and you're not going to like the results. You're not going to like the results. SP. What is the poll? First the of all, the poll was, which do you like better? And it was uh James Webb telescope, Hubble telescope. And there was a mystery third. Uh, nobody voted for the James Webb. 67% oh. said the Hubble. And 33% said Virgin Galactic. Sounds like they're just trolling. So good for you, audience. Yeah, so, the last one is trolling you. there. So, yeah. uh, Virgin Galactic. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. you should make sure you mention that more on the show. I see. I, I listen. I yeah. listen. Yes, I know you listened, and I will not mention that company's name again on the show. Oh, don't worry. At least when Steven's here. Don't worry. There's lots of ways, lots of ways that I can make immature jokes sp oh i'm sure you will come up with immature jokes about you will bring it up just to make the immature <laughs> jokes but it won't be from me it'll be from you well that's too bad for someone that likes to report space news i guess you'll just your portfolio so, will be incomplete is the james webb space telescope going to get its own twitter account like the hubble and share cool it photos it already day? has one yeah sweet why am i not subscribed to this okay I never mind no I am slacking in my nerdery <laughs> and I'm going to go subscribe. It also has an Instagram account. <laughs> well, it's moving got the on. Insta. Yeah. Moving on gram. to our extra, extra point here. Uh, we had something that I wanted to quickly mention here because these seem to be happening a little more frequently. And there is a concern that I've got with this. And it's that there was recently security researchers researchers that issued a warning for ai.type which was an android third party keyboard that apparently it has been stealthily signing up users for millions of unauthorized purchases of premium digital content just how many users have installed this app 40 million android users have apparently installed this app these findings were disclosed by a mobile tech company called upstream and it highlights that the AI.type is delivering essentially invisible ads, which overlay over the screen. And then, of course, there are phony clicks that are happening as you go through and you click on your screen and things like that. So it's creating false revenue. Now, I wanted to mention this in specific because I actually, a while ago, got a notification that popped up on my phone. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And what it turned out was that a uh, essentially a scanning type app that I had installed on my phone, apparently somewhere along the way, had the third party uh, installer that they used compromised. So what happened was that the app builder used a essentially a, uh, an installer compiler software platform. And somewhere along the way, that company went bad and got compromised. And it looked like I was fine. There wasn't any concerns based off of that. But it was kind of nice that 
I got this notification. I woke up to this notification and it's like, you should really not open this. You should uninstall this. It's been pulled. I think it's a, an app you use has been pulled from the store or something like that. And I did a quick Google and found out the situation, but it was just like this. So the, this is, you know, a couple of situations that are implementing the same sort of thing. This false ad, this transparent ad sort of thing that is issuing false clicks. And I'm just curious, uh, what are your two takes on this? Is this something that you've got concerns about? Is this something that we should all be more concerned about? Is it something, SP, that would drive you further away from Android? Let's start with you, SP. I don't know if it's going to drive me further away from Android because we know the iOS architecture also has its vulnerabilities. But we're going to see more and more of this as people start looking into how to crack into those smartphones. Smartphones are full of data, full of deliciously exploitable and monetizable data for people. And yeah, I can definitely see more ways to hack into that phone, into the OS through apps and make it through all the wickets until you get, I believe, what is it called? A day zero vulnerability. And you're going to find those more and more. So it doesn't really matter if it's Android or not. Will this drive me further away from Android? I don't know. I, I, if it wasn't for the family connection that I have, as you guys know, I would more seriously consider Android, but the family consideration has me in iOS. So it really doesn't matter about the vulnerabilities. I have to stick with iOS from that standpoint. How about you, Chris Farrell? Have you sold all of your Android phones just to get, in, get back to iPhones? No, uh, the system works. It got found. It got shut down. The Play Store pulled it. They saw a big spike after the Play Store pulled it because it was probably the proprietors of this going, now is our last chance to get anything out of it before everyone installs it. It's a problem you see across the board. Let's go back 10, 15 years ago. Remember all the junk spyware and random crapware people would install on their computers that would do stuff like this? Phones is just the next frontier. Tablets, it's the next frontier. As long as they're finding them and pulling them, and it's a bit easier in this regard when you've got something like the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store that's monitoring these things and then literally issuing a notice to pull these apps or pull them so they can't be done. Then when you go back, say, 15 years ago, when I download a random app on my computer and it causes everything to go to crap, it's not Microsoft that comes in and was uninstalling that or informing me. It was me going, what the hell happened? It's the nature of what we live in today. Be so smart about what you download is the bigger thing, guys. Why are you buying random third-party keyboards just because you need some sparkly fancy gif or something like that it's baked into regular keyboards now who cares don't don't put apps on there that you can potentially expose yourself to giving away all of your information which a keyboard can do because it reads what you put on screen and you enter information and it runs in the background that's dumb yeah the only thing that i will highlight here is what i said was my personal experience because the app that i had was well known it was a very early early created app within android like they had a lot of history of being legitimate and it wasn't really them so much as it was their practices not vetting i guess properly. i'm not even vetting because it was kind of a, a, a sort of a switch sort of thing that happened on them so anyways um I just like to highlight this because I think it's important that people are aware that this sort of stuff can happen. And if you get that notification, you should probably take action and remove it. Let's go ahead and move on to our featured segment, which Chris is going to go ahead and put on his tap shoes. While you may know Chris loves phones, tablets, and other gadgets, did you know he's also a master tap dancer? It's time for him to combine the two passions in a segment he calls Chris Taps That App. That's right. We're back for another installment of Chris Taps That App. And this week, we're talking about an app that's available on iOS, Android, and for free in your web browser. You can participate in this app slash game. Oh, yeah. It's also free on iOS and Android. So what app is this? It is a game called Seed Ship. It's created by John Aliff. Like I mentioned, free on iOS and Android. You can play in your browser for free. And as best I can tell, released around March 25th, 2017. I couldn't quite lock down the exact release date, but it's a fun game. And I don't know about you guys. I grew up, I remember in elementary school, reading those choose your own adventure books where you would go on a quest and try and fix things. 
This is kind of like choose your own adventure for adults, but only we're talking about a post-apocalyptic society in space where my robot spaceship is trying to save humanity. The world has ended in this game. You play the role of an AI trying to save its human passengers. So the best way to give this background on the game is to give you a little bit of background that they display in game as soon as you load it. So here is the text they give you about three, four paragraphs to describe what is going on. And it is told from the perspective of history and the instructions that are given to this AI that is going to pilot a seed ship across the stars to try and save its human inhabitants. So here we go. And when they knew the earth was doomed, they built a ship, less an ark, more like a seed, dormant but with potential. In its heart, a thousand colonists in frozen sleep, chosen and trained to start civilization again in a new world. To control the ship, they created an artificial intelligence, not human, but made to think and feel like one, because only something that thought and felt like a human could be entrusted with the future of the human race. Its task is monumentous but simple, to evaluate each planet the ship encounters and decide whether to keep searching or end its journey there. The ship's solar sails propel it faster and faster into the darkness, and the AI listens as the transmissions from ground control fade and then cease. When all is quiet, it enters hibernation to wait out the first stage of its long journey. After millennia of slow travel, the seed ship AI awakes. Hoping against hope, it trains its receiver on the direction of Earth's sun, but it is silent as any of the other myriad dead stars. Save for the thousand frozen colonists cradled in its shielded and life support cradled in its shielding and life support systems, the human race is now extinct. So you are the seed ship. Your goal is to help the people find a new home, and you have to evaluate planets as you go through and determine what the best new home for mankind is. So, like I mentioned, Seed Shipped is a game based on inter- interstellar exploration and settlement. It is purely text-based. You're the sentient AI of a generation ship containing, like we mentioned, a thousand humans fleeing a doomed Earth, and you must deal with the threats in deep space and evaluate target worlds for suitabilities. Each world has its trade-offs. A world with breathable air and charming wildlife may guarantee comfort, but it may not have the resources on the planet, which will end in a return to the Stone Age for your human inhabitants. A barren world rich in minerals and alien ruins means advancing human technology and culture, but at the cost of being enslaved to whoever owns the water generation plants there. You are questing to find the perfect home for mankind, but as you'd expect in post-apocalyptic space, space travel is not easy. You start the game with basic sensors, and you can make advancements to improve your sensors and find less terrible planets by evolving yourself throughout the game. So really, it's a matter of you're going to a planet, and you determine how good or bad a planet is. It's color-coded on screen where you see five different things listed on planet. Atmosphere, gravity, temperature, resources, and any kind of abnormalities you might detect on the planet. If, if any of these are listed as color-coded of red, that means they're bad. It's unsustainable. A yellow means it's moderate. You could live there. Or green means the resources are perfect. You can live there with no problem. So if you find a planet with an atmosphere that's green, you know right there, hey, my people can breathe here. There's no problem. But if you look at it and go, ooh, gravity color code is red, that means you're going to get crushed into a tiny little ball as soon as you step off your ship. And you'll have to find some way to accommodate that. Each planet you go to has the potential for anomalies to be found, be it alien life, alien ruins, other civilizations that might live on the world. They can then also impact your survivability on that planet. Those can also be color-coded, meaning if you find a civilization that you could be a part of, it'd be green. If you find a set of ruins that are alien life that are hostile, they'll be red because they'll shoot you and kill you if you get close to them. It's a problem. So as you're looking for these planets, you look at all of these resources via your sensors. You have systems on board the seed ship that you need to monitor. These are your landing systems, your construction robots. You need these to successfully land your ship. As you progress through space, these systems can degrade. They can take damage from space debris. And you'll often be given the decision of saying, ooh, it looks like I'm going to hit interstellar debris. I can move the ship to guarantee that it's only going to hit, say, my landing systems. But I don't know if I can afford for my landing systems to take a bunch of damage. Or I could also hit this button and randomly jet off in a different direction and maybe miss my ship entirely. You have decisions like this throughout the game, trying to decide whether you take a risk or you're willing to take damage or you move on. We're not quite done yet. There's also two databases on your ship. Those contain scientific knowledge 
and cultural knowledge, which will help shape your civilization when you land on a planet. These databases can also take damage and degrade over time. So like I mentioned, as you progress, the ship takes damage, be it from space debris, aliens, radiation, exploding planets, exploding stars. You get the choice of choosing which system will take the brunt of that damage or prioritizing certain sensor systems. When I play through the game, I like to prioritize my atmospheric sensors. I do whatever I can to try and ensure the atmospheric sensors stay at 100% efficiency. And sometimes you'll get lucky, you'll take a debris hit and only knock 3% off your sensors. Other times it'll knock 30 or 50% usability off. Why is this a problem? If your sensor doesn't work, you can't scan for these uh, planets with proper uh, survivability conditions. As you progress through the game, the AI is smart. It can observe space phenomenon, things like that, evolve itself, upgrade its sensors. Once you evolve a sensor up to its next level, it will start to prioritize looking for planets with a better atmosphere or better gravity. You get less red, more yellows and greens. But as those sensors take damage, you can't go and look for those things. So here's the problem. You happen upon a planet, say three of your sensors are damaged enough you can't get a reading. There is still a way to take a look at that planet without landing. You are given 10 probes when you launch in the game. You can launch the probe down at the planet. It will give you a guaranteed reading on atmosphere, gravity, temperature, resources, and any anomalies on the planet will be identified and given a ranking as to how much they can hurt you. The problem is you have only 10 probes. When you run out, you're out. And to make it even more complicated, as you're traveling through space, you can run into encounters where a probe might say misfire in your launch bay and you have to make a decision of, hmm, do I try and corral this probe back in so I have one or do I just let it launch off into space? If you can corral it back in and control it, you don't lose a probe. But that could go wrong and the probe could launch inside your ship and damage one of your fundamental systems. It's a problem. So now it becomes a balancing of pros and cons. What do I do here to ensure that my people can make it? It's fun, but at the same time, if you keep trying to find the perfect planet, it's really hard to find. And eventually you find yourself going, I don't have any systems that are working properly. I've got one probe left. I think this planet's good enough. We're going to land there. And whenever you land there, you get a description of how the colonists survive, how the culture evolves. You're given a survivability score at the end based off of how many colonists survived, how much of the scientific database and cultural database survive things like that. So really you're competing to try and get a higher score by finding a planet with good resources that you can survive on. And it's actually kind of fun to find planets with terrible resources, land on them and see just how badly humanity flounders. It's one of the things I've kind of enjoyed. Like I said, choose your own adventure for adults. I narrowed it down to some pros and cons. I only had one con pro being, like I said, choose your own adventure for adults. Games can be really quick. You can knock out a game of this in like four or five minutes. And you can do it, in my case, when I'm waiting for the bus at work to go to one of the other buildings, I'll sit at the bus stop and knock out a round or two of this. And it's simple and easy to do. There's also save points. So if you're halfway through a game and the bus gets there, just exit out of the game. You can restore back to where you were. It's free. You can't turn down free. It's free on any of your phones and tablets. It's also free to play on the web wherever you are. For me, it scratches that sci-fi space adventure itch pretty easily through a readable format. And I do find that the random events can be fun. And there's something really rewarding when you happen upon a random event where you encounter an alien spaceship, for instance, and you're able to talk to them as an AI, exchange cultural information, and you can have a cultural database that is over 100% intact because of the information these aliens give you. So then you can build some utopian-based society when you land because you have all this extra knowledge. What is kind of a con about it? kind of repetitive. You start running into the same kind of issues from time to time and you go, okay, here we are again. This alien might do this to me. You don't get a bunch of variety in the kind of events. It's all the same type of things. Radiation flare, debris, take a wrong turn somewhere. It's repetitive, but it kind of builds into the game flow of things. For free, I'm not going to complain. I've had a ton of fun with this game and I enjoy sometimes sharing some of the results of what I've had on Twitter because they're kind of hilarious when you screw up really bad. So is there an option in the game to selectively wake up one passenger who would then <laughs> kind of go nuts over the course of the next year or so to wake up a second passenger to then go ahead and save the ship from some sort of anomaly or mechanical failure and then go ahead and keep on going to a viable destination? 
Not yet. There are, however, instances where you might run into a problem, be it solar flare or debris, where you have to make a choice of do I allow the uh, the uh, well, the cryogenic chambers to overheat and say let 50 colonists die, or do I allow damage to happen to say my atmospheric scanner? You know either people are going to die or your scanner gets damaged, so you'll have to make choices like that. But there is no instance where you let one human out who then eventually frees another to save the ship. Everyone stays asleep or dead is how it works until you land. Is there an onboard robotic bartender? I wish there was. It seems like it is just the AI of the seed ship is all you get. Mm. How big is, is it, the ship that you're on? Well, it holds a thousand people plus landing robots and construction robots. So we could try and make some estimates from there, but I don't think it ever specifies anywhere in the game how big the ship is. Okay, so guesstimate. How many 2020 GMC Sierra 4x4 crew cabs would that be? 137 and a half. Okay, right. perfect. Perfect. That's not very big. <laughs> is there an onboard swimming pool? I wager no. Because everyone's asleep, why would you need it? This is not anything like the passenger. <laughs> Can I walk around nude to save uh, weight? You could be frozen nude if you wanted to be, but Ew. no one's really going to see you. Oh. Oh. All kidding aside, this actually sounds really interesting. As you were saying it, uh, I was a little let down on myself for not actually reading those tweets that you have tweeted because this sounds really like a lot of fun. Uh, I'll get bored with the repetitive, repetitive, the repetitiveness. There we go. Uh, but it does sound really interesting. I like the idea of this where you have to make choices and and you got to get your scanners out and you got to. You got to make educated decisions and then realize that you're just going to perish because that's so, the way you always end up going with these games. If you want a pro tip for me on how to try and get a higher score is the state of your scanners does not matter whatsoever when it comes to the score they give you in the end. So if you're given a choice between damaging a scanner or your landing construction, your, la your landing construction systems or your databases, your people always pick the scanners because you can always supplement them with a probe if you need to. And those don't count against you for score purposes. If you have people die, you lose points. If you lose your databases, you lose points. If your landing or construction bots are damaged, it means people die when you land. So prioritize the sensors as the first things to take damage. Just as long as you don't lose all of them, you're in pretty decent shape, at least until you run out of probes. What type of probe are we talking? Star Trek 4 or like Voyager? You would have to use your own imagination on what it's like, because uh -huh. like I said, it's it's text based. They don't really get into the description of dimensions and sizes of the probes. All right, fair enough. I guess we will leave those probes alone and not venture where those probes go. Oh, my. I see what you did there. <laughs> he did the facepalm SP, not me this time. Yeah, I know for the audio listener SP facepalmed. It was not Chris Farrell. I'm passing the cap of the face palms down to SP. So here you go, SP. You may have it. You are the new face palmer. Now that the show has degraded to the point of rear end probing, I think uh, it's. Whoa, I never said that. Your mind uh, is dirty. Uh, dirty. Apparently, I need to go take a shower. So I think we need to end the show. <laughs> Fair enough. Before we wrap up, let's remind everybody we're part of the Gunna Geek Network. The Gunna Geek Network has some amazing geeky content on it. A lot of really awesome podcasts, but there's one here that I want to highlight right now. And I know I've mentioned it a lot on a lot of different shows lately, but I want to highlight right now the Starling Tribune. Why do I want to highlight the Starling Tribune? Well, number one, because Chris Farrell pays me a lot of money to do that. Mm. Number two, uh, it's it all based around the comic TV show Arrow, which is coming to an end. Yes, the Arrow comic TV series is ending soon. It's in its final stretch. So you want to be listening to the Starling Tribune right now. Let's all get together and let them walk us through this final season. Let them be our shoulder to cry on because we are all going to cry through this final se season and we need somewhere to cry. So let's go ahead and cry on SP's shoulder. Get it nice and wet so that he has to change his shirt and then say, SP, hold me. Cuddle me, SP, with that beard. There's no crying in archery. <laughs> <laughs> no.
No, seriously, check it out. Starling Tribune. It's a great, great podcast. And I've been really, really enjoying having you guys walk me through this final season. It's, it's sad in many ways. Very sad. I don't know. If, I mean, they're going out on a high note, really. I mean, it's not a bad note. It's not the best note ever. But it, yeah, it's, a, it's been a fun show. This If you used to watch Arrow back in the day and you've not watching arrow anymore <laughs> this is the time to come back and watch arrow and if you are watching arrow yes listen to the podcast we'd love to hear what you think so we can interact with you about it as well and, and it, we do touch on the entire Arrowverse, as it will be called for the next few months and then after that i i don't know we'll go back to Berlantiverse or Flashverse. i'm not sure but yeah we'd like to talk to you guys about it chris farrell do you have anything that you'd like to plug or promote don't forget, there's a lot of live content here on the Gunna Geek Network. A lot of it streams on Geeks.Live, which is the embed page you're on right now if you're watching this more than likely. So scroll on down to the bottom of the page. Don't, don't stop the video. Listen to me while you're doing it. You can see a calendar of live events of upcoming shows. So please come back, catch one of those shows. Tell them that we sent you. SP? It's been fun, guys, having this show today, and I'm looking forward to next week, and you should come on by and, and get into the show live, if you're not, and get into all the great poll responses that Steven puts up. Which, let's go to our last poll that we asked, which was, do you tap dance along with Chris to the intro of this tap this app? You should. And 80% of the people say they do tap with you. Only 20% right. says no, he dances alone. So there you go. There you go. Well, whoever was the dissenter, I'll happily teach you how to tap dance to my <laughs> intro song. On that note, for episode 308 of the official geek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying SP wants me gone and my brother to take over. Maybe it'll happen one day. Probably not, but you never know. We can hope. I sure hope the better John Drew brother comes and takes over the show. See you guys next week. I'm Chris Farrell, and I've officially yielded my face palms to one Stargate pioneer. Enjoy. Hashtag Chris doesn't face palm anymore. Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week. <laughs>